you don't need to like remake the way you play. You don't need to remake your shot. You don't need to do things differently. Like you're on a good path. If you can be a division three player and average 20 a game, you can give yourself a shot to be a pro player. Just like stick with that. And I tinkered too much. The best way I can explain it is I'm very interested in figuring things out and experimenting on myself. And so, you know, that in a way makes you uncoachable um, because, you know, you're like, ah, I hear you, but I'm gonna really try it and see if it works. I mean, I was taking it as serious as I could. It was just, there was limited opportunity to play. You know, I was dying to play basketball all winter and they're just, you know, I had my little 20 game season with one practice, but there's no pickup. There's like one rec center and you weren't allowed to play in the five on five games until you were, I think 13. So I was like, you know, I got the rec center membership when I was like 11 and I would just go shoot and shoot and shoot. So I couldn't really take it that seriously. So I want to start with basketball in Alaska and the Denali yeah. Boys and Girls Club. So talk to, talk a little bit about that and what the basketball scene was like growing up out in Alaska. Oh, yeah. So the basketball scene in Alaska when I was growing up was um, it was solid, like for Alaska. I mean, we're talking about not that many people, right? Uh, you know, total, we're talking like 750,000 people in the state. Um half of them in one city. So you basically have Anchorage, which is the size of Anaheim. Um, and then the next biggest place is Fairbanks, which is the size of Newport Beach, like okay. in terms of population. And then you have Juneau, which is half the size of Fairbanks. Um, and that's kind of like in the middle of nowhere. And then after that, it's just like, you know, little municipalities and native american villages really like the rest of the state is not that large you know thousands to a few thousand people to a few hundred people in the bigger you know bigger areas of, of population and the state's really really big so yeah it's just sparsely populated uh at the time uh in my high school class mario chalmers was the best player in the state also the best point guard in the country which was pretty crazy because you know again, there's not that many people. So he played on a team, Bartlett High School, that was really good. They had a player that ended up going to Kentucky. They had a couple of guys that played Division II at the local University of Alaska Fairbanks, University of Alaska Anchorage schools. And then they had Mario who went to Kansas, you know, four-year starter, like All-American, ended up hitting that big shot against Memphis in the national title game. Um, they won the state championship my junior year, which was my last year in Alaska. Um, but then kind of growing up, uh, we had a couple pretty good players. Uh, one of them, Brad Olson, um, people aren't going to know that name, but he played like 10 years in the ACB in Spain. He had, he okay. was a division two player. Um, the only division two player to win MVP and like have his team win a division one tournament at the top of the world classic, like way back. Um, yeah, phenomenal Division II player, probably averaged 25 a game um, in his last two years of college at University of Alaska Fairbanks. Uh, kind of had a cup of coffee near the NBA. I think he did summer league and some camps, some training camps. Um, was inspirationally good because he didn't look the part. He was wearing like the the uh, the, the mid-calf socks when everyone was wearing no-shows. <laughs> and he was wearing skater shoes and had a backwards hat like – 
So he just didn't look the part at all, but was just cold and was like completely fearless as a shot maker and as like a kind of a leader of his little quaint North Pole, Alaska high school team. Um, but yeah, he ended up playing like 10 years in the ACB, made a few million dollars um, playing over there at some point. I think he was making well over a million a year, actually. I think he was wow. second in scoring one year behind Rudy Fernandez, a uh, member okay. of the Blazers. Yeah. Um, and the the Spanish team that lost to the Redeem team in 2008. Um, so he was second in scoring behind him one year. He's like an Alaska legend in basketball. And then the other big name dude was Kyle Bailey, who played for Santa Clara, uh, played multiple years professional overseas. He was part of that Santa Clara team that beat North Carolina when they had like uh, okay. Rashad McCants and that whole crew of, you know, big time guys and were top five in the country. Um, funny, Santa Clara had two Alaska guards as their backcourt, Doran Perkins and wow. uh, Kyle Bailey at the time. So that was like a big deal. And I just found this Instagram page called We Got Next, which is all about Alaska hoops. Um, and so they'll have like throwbacks to stuff like that and top of the world classic with Brad Olson and, uh, and then a bunch of people I haven't even heard of who are kind of like the next up and coming generation of Alaska basketball players that I had no idea existed. Wow. That's um, cool. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. And then just like the general climate, like, man, it's just nothing like this. It is here in Southern California, you know, here, well, now it's just so competitive and everybody's playing some level of club basketball and everybody's training all the time. And in Alaska, we played like, we had one youth league that played 20 games a season. So from third grade till sixth grade, you played 20 games a year and then you could play for your middle school and you got another, maybe like 15 games a year. So until high school, you were playing like a total of, I don't know, maybe 30 games a year at most. Whereas wow. now, like, you know, these third graders are playing a hundred games a year or more. Yeah. They're practicing twice a week. They have like people that really care about being good. And like everybody's like gung ho about training multiple times a week by the time they're nine, 10, 11, 12 years old. Um, so the culture for basketball and competitive basketball wasn't really there. It was more in hockey. Like I was a hockey player until okay. seventh grade and we were getting after it. Like you were practicing every single day, five, 6 a.m. If you were on the younger teams, like, we had the hockey culture uh, for like being competitive and putting players into college and being, you know, putting players into the pro level. Like uh, the local hockey team was like, the local hockey team was in the equivalent of the SEC for hockey. It was like okay. University of Alaska Fairbanks, University of Alaska Anchorage, and then like Michigan, Michigan State, Boston College, um, Minnesota, like the top hockey schools in the country along with the Alaska schools. So that was a big deal. And you could go to those games and see the best hockey players in the country and guys that were going to get drafted in the next few years. And so that was like, you know, all of that plays into the culture, just like it does here. If you go watch a high school game, you mm -hmm. can watch guys that are going to play in the NBA in the next few years. Um, yeah. So that was very cool. Um, but yeah, definitely didn't have what we have here in Southern California <laughs> and Alaska at all. So you played hockey up until sixth or seventh grade. How did you find basketball? Well, I always played basketball. Like I always, when I was four, okay. uh, I started a Michael Jordan card collection and I would go like, 
I don't know, once a month, once every other week or so to the card store and I would save up all my allowances and I would buy another single of Michael Jordan or I'd buy a pack um, and try and get a Michael Jordan card. Um, and so I was just massive Michael Jordan fan. And so I would just play all summer on the outdoor courts. Um, and then I would have like, I had like a custom hamper hoop that I set up in my room that was like the best possible setup you could have indoor in your room for basketball. And I had this sick little, like it had a real bounce to it. It wasn't a Nerf ball and it wasn't an actual out. It wasn't like one of those small size three, 22 inch outdoor balls. It like, I couldn't find it again if I wanted to, but it was a great setup <laughs> for playing in your room for hours a day. So I would do that. But then, yeah, I would just like, I was playing hockey more competitive, earlier age, like more serious, like you had multiple rinks you could go to and just get a pickup hockey game, um, okay. outdoor rinks. Cause it's cold enough that the, it just stays cold. Like the ice just stays. So you could yeah. just take your stuff. Like you could take your stuff to Los Alamitos in Rossmore park and get a pickup <laughs> game. Like you could do the same thing with hockey in Alaska wow. where you could just go to the ice and there would just be people playing and you put the nets down. So you like had to hit a post to score. You had to hit like, a certain part of the net to score and you just pick up teams and you'd play like inside the blue line. It's kind of like a half court game. If you only had a few or if you had 10, you could go okay. full ice and yeah. So it was like, it was its own thing. And that was all winter. You could play pickup hockey. Wow. So then sixth or seventh grades when you started taking basketball more seriously. I mean, I was taking it as serious as I could. It was just, there was limited opportunity to play, you know, yeah. I just, dying to play basketball all winter and they're just you know i had my no little pickup scene out season there. With one practice but there's no pickup there's like one rec center and you weren't allowed to play in the five on five games until you were I think 13 so i was like wow. you know i got the rec center membership when i was like 11 and i would just go shoot and shoot and shoot so i couldn't really take it that seriously then once i hit middle school i made like the the year before I played on kind of the B hockey team because I was like the youngest at the new age group. Um, so I was on like the the second level super competitive team. Um, and I would miss hockey practices to go to basketball practices. And my coach did not like that. <laughs> and the next year he was like, hey, like you have to be fully committed to this. You can't miss hockey for basketball at all. Like you're going to, you know, you, you can't miss hockey practices for basketball games. And I was like, okay, like this is, this is where we stop playing hockey. Even though I was <laughs> supposed to play for the super, you know, the A super competitive team with like the extra traveling and like all that stuff. Um, but yeah, I just, I always liked basketball more. I just happened to, you know, have, there's just more hockey opportunity up there. Yeah. And you then know, you like, ended up at Cal State East Bay, but you went to Seattle in between. Yeah. So end of high school, my mom's parents, like they started having like a really hard time and she wanted to take care of them. So the whole family moved to the Seattle area. I uh, went to one year to Redmond High School um, in the Seattle area and then went to Bellevue College, uh, just a small junior college in the little Washington, Oregon league called the NWAC. It's like a Northwest Community College League. Um, and then I went from there to Cal State East Bay for my junior and senior year. And that's where I got connected to this guy, Charlie Torres, um, who does basketball training in Southern California as well. 
we stayed in touch over the years kind of after, as I started, as I finished my degree and everything, and he invited me to do player development in Southern California. Okay, cool. So yeah. you end up in Southern California. I know you were trying to still yeah. play a little bit after school and you're doing camps. What was that yeah. like? kind of the transition from trying to train and, and still got, have one last shot at it? Yeah, I was, uh, I was trying to keep playing. So I was going to play like, you know, any sort of semi-pro tournament. I went to some, uh, some of those like Las Vegas, like pay to be seen pro level camps. Um, I did those for a couple years, honestly, like at the end of my playing career and I was like solid, a solid division three player. I wasn't like to be a pro player you just got to be mentally really solid. Like you've got to be able to perform in awful conditions in spite of all the different things that could possibly be going wrong. You know, especially if you're trying to do it like, uh, you know, in a small country or in a starter job where you're playing in Estonia for $500 a month and it's like cold or like, you know, it's, it's the, the conditions stink and, you know, the coach isn't like you or whatever it may be. Um, I really wasn't mentally like prepared or mentally tough enough at the time to be a professional basketball player. I don't think. Um, and so at the same time I was started to do training because Charlie invited me out to do that. And that was kind of his gig. And I was kind of learning from him and yeah, I was lucky to be in the gym with really good players right away. Um, and so, that that kind of jump started my basketball training career. Was there uh, an experience you could have had, or a piece of advice, maybe at the time that would have put you in a better position to be mentally ready to play, or you just think it was never really in the cards? Um, so there was a point. Um, I don't know if there was something. You know, I was always like kind of being the way that I approach things where I'm kind of a, I'm not self-taught full, like by in, in the way that you would be so like, I don't really know how to, I guess the best way I can explain it is I'm very interested in figuring things out and experimenting on myself. And so, mm -hmm. you know, that in a way makes you uncoachable um, because you know, you're like, ah, I hear you, but I'm going to really try it and see if it works. And, yeah. uh, instead of just, you know, being a little bit more willing to be coached. Uh, and so that kind of put me in a position to probably tinker with my routines and tinker with the things that I was doing and the way that I was approaching basketball too much. Um, the best advice I could give myself back then was like, I really hit a point my junior year of college um, where I felt like I'd figured it out. And I had these routines going that were helping me to be successful and I was getting better. I think over the last nine, 10 games of my junior year, I averaged like 23 a game, shot the ball phenomenal. Like every game I went out there, I felt like I was like able to find that point where I was locked in and playing well. And then I just, just tinkered with stuff. I just over tinkered and I didn't just like, okay, like this is how I do it. And now I just plow. And now I just continue with these routines and I continue with this mentality and I organize things so that I have this, you know, this sense or this feeling going into performance every single time. And I don't mess with like, 
the way that I'm working on my body too much and I don't mess with the way that I'm working on my game too much. You know, maybe you, you learn something new, like you can add it here and there, but like you don't need to like remake the way you play. You don't need to remake your shot. You don't need to do things differently. Like you're on a good path. If you can be a division three player and average 20 a game, you can give yourself a shot to be a pro player. Just like stick with that. And I tinkered too much. I dicked around with, you know, the way I, all the things that I just talked about. And I, I didn't like, I just was never able to capture in my competitive playing career. I think I've been able to capture it at different moments afterwards, but I wasn't able to capture that when it was my time, the way that I would have liked to. And that would be my advice to my previous self. Do you think you were tinkering because like you wanted the results faster or just trying to optimize the best possible routine and technique? Um, I think I was tinkering because I didn't have great self-awareness and I thought that I could, you know, uh, I mean, the classic example is like the white shooter who doesn't want to be just the white shooter. Right. And he wants to prove that you can put the ball on the floor and that you can do these other things with the ball. And like, you know, a lot of times you can, but it is based on you being that guy that can shoot. And so like, you, you don't ever lose that. You, you stay with that, you know, to your last dying breath of basketball. And then you kind of fill in the gaps with the other stuff, but your base and where you're coming from as a player remains the same. And I, you know, I wanted, I think I wanted to like develop the other parts of my game to be as strong as the, you know, the foundational part of my game, which was a silly idea and lack self-awareness and wasn't the way to go. So in terms of, performance anxiety and experimenting with things I know you would experiment with your performance anxiety and how to oh, yeah. decrease that day. could you t- can you tell the story about uh drinking before a college practice oh yeah you listen to the stance podcast yeah <laughs> yeah so my junior year like I was getting phenomenal results playing uh outside of practice so Um, we had a really good group of players who were like ex players for the team who stayed around and like worked at the university and kept taking classes. Um, kind of like some local guys who had played community college and then just some guys who played at a pretty good level in high school who just were going to school and they would play pickup late at night, you know, like the 10 PM run at the, uh, at the, at the gym at school. And so I would always come back after practices and play pickup. And I was like, man, I was just playing so well. Like, you know, I had learned some of this stuff from Charlie Torres at the beginning of the year with like ball handling and creating your creating space. And I was implementing that stuff. And I had this good routine, these good routines going. And I was like, man, like, I just cannot seem to do this when I practice and when I play in the games, like, I don't understand why this isn't translating as well as I think it should as consistently as it should. And, uh, So I was like, you know, I think my, you can feel it in your hands and in your, your body when you're not, you don't have optimal arousal, when you're not mentally and physically connected in a way that's going to give you the best performance. Um, And so, you know, you start to go to your, think about like, what, what can you do? How can you alter your state so that you can trend, you know, you can take these things that you do in a less pressurized situation and 
do them under more pressure. And like, obviously alcohol is something that people seem to lose their inhibitions when they use it decently often. So I was like, I mean, I'm going to try this. Like, and if I'm going to try to, I'm going to try it, I'm going to like, you know, kind of do it in a way that's organized to the best of my ability. Uh, so yeah, I would just go down to the local liquor store and I would get like little, uh, the little shots. Um, and I started with like half of one of those bottles and then I worked my way up to like whole one of the bottles, which was too much because I was getting too tired in practice. And I was like, Oh my God, I'm like dehydrated and tired. And then one time it was like a late morning practice, like an 11 AM practice. And coach was like, I don't know who was out last night, but somebody just reeks. And I was like, dang, like that must be me because I drank this about 40 minutes ago and I don't think anybody else smells right now. So that's when I kind of cut doing that. And I started to look for <laughs> other, other options for, for getting myself to the right place. That's great. I know you yeah. still play a lot of pickup. Is there a routine you found now that works for you? Is, is performance anxiety something you still have? Um, day and something you got to work on sometimes i mean i'm not playing in like super high pressure situations yeah um, but you're always trying to optimize for like can you get deeper and deeper into the groove can you have better and better performances can you you know find a way to like out outplay your previous bests um and i think recently i was listening to a lot of huberman um you know the huberman labs podcast yes so I was listening to a lot of the Humans Lab podcast, and there was a part on it about, or there was a, one of the podcasts was about uh, perception of time and the dopamine serotonin system. And my takeaway from it was dopamine will thin slice time. And so if you, the more dopamine you have flowing through you, uh, the thinner slice time is. And so the more wow. effectively, like a camera, your camera guy, Effectively, mm -hmm. the more frames per second you have in your experience, okay. um, it's not going to be like things are in slow motion, but it's also going to be, you know, all things being equal, if I have more frames per second than you, I can make better decisions than you. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, just because I have more time to make that decision. So I started messing around with the some of the supplements he was talking about for dopamine enhancement, which was uh tyrosine alpha gpc and mucanopurines which is like a derivative uh, like an l-dopa supplement um so i've been taking those before i play um and then i'll take like uh some gaba and l-theanine to get kind of like a more like more on the relaxed end because the dopamine concentrates you and sometimes that can be like zzz, and it's too much uh -huh. and you're like ah like i could it's, it's almost like you're overly focused. And so like, there's this balance between your gross motor skills and like moving. So like I can take the dopamine stuff and then defensively, I feel like, I feel like I'm pushing to go like as the offense is pushing to go. Like the, okay. I'm almost like in sync with their footwork, like almost exactly timed, like the Rolodex of moves in my head and they're pushing to go is just like, yeah, it's, it feels awesome because like they're they're going left and I'm sliding as they're going and there's almost no time, like there's no lag time between my push and their push, which yeah. is great because I'm playing great defense. 
at the same time, the fine motor skills of things like shooting and touch and layups and like ball handling sometimes and passing, those take a more relaxed feel from your, your central nervous system. So those take like a lot more fine motor skill. And so if I'm too high on the dopamine end, I don't have as much fine motor skill. I can't calm myself down enough. So the, G, the GABA and the L-theanine kind of, you know, balances me out with the dopamine stuff. And so I'll take those maybe like 50 minutes before I play. Um, and then sometime between taking those and maybe two or three hours before that, I'll do a yoga nidra. Uh, somewhere between five and 30 minutes. So that's another Huberman protocol. It's like a non-sleep deep rest thing. And it's, yeah. it's the, you've done a yoga class, right? Yeah. So, you know, the part of the yoga class, and it's funny, I found this in college, but I didn't know what it was called and I didn't know why it was helping me, but I was doing it in kind of a stretchy, like relaxy way. And that was the point where I was having some of my best performances and so oh, this has wow. kind of come full circle full where circle, yeah. it's the part of the yoga class that you lay down and you just ground yourself into your environment fully. Um, first by focusing on your breathing, then by focusing on kind of where your body and the environment connect. So the sounds that you can hear, the taste of, you know, your basically the taste of the air or your, your mouth in general um the feeling of your body against the floor the feeling of the air against the parts of your body that aren't on the floor um and then you do this thing called uh somatosensory cycling where you know if you think about the feeling of your hand there's like a distinct part, there's like a part of your mind that can focus on the feeling of your hand and i think that's called the somatosensory cortex and you go through your entire body starting with like your tongue in your mouth and the different parts of your throat and your cheeks and your face and all the way through everything. And you kind of cycle through your somatosensory cortex. Um, and at the same time, you're relaxing all those parts as you're cycling through them. And then you just have kind of a portion of it where you're just kind of laying there breathing and they'll give you some sort of like, uh, you know, your inhale is the water is like a waterfall moving up your body and your exhale is the water is a waterfall moving down your body. Sometimes it's a side to side. Um, this lady that I listen to, she has lots of different techniques for kind of giving you a flow of breath feeling. Um, and that seems to be really good at relaxing me and getting me to that, the relaxation part of the relaxation con concentration continuum that I need for optimum focus. Uh, so I'll do the yoga nidra three hours, two hours, an hour, 30 minutes before I start warming up, take the supplements 45, 50, 45 minutes before I start warming up. Um, then I have my warm ups, and then I get to hooping. And I found that if I do those things at this point, I have like five and six chance of playing like average or above. Um, okay. you know, or, or like where I feel like I've met expectations. Mm -hmm. Um, if I don't do those things and I just like warm up and play, I would say there's a one in two chance, maybe a two and three. 
So I think I, yeah. um, all of this is contingent on sleep. And, and, you know, there's other factors that go into this, but I think sleep's a big one. Uh, and so I feel, yeah, I sense that if I, if I kind of do those things and I prepare myself in that way, I give myself a really good chance of, of playing well. And this is the type of uh, professional mental preparation that I needed to be, and not everyone's this way. Some people are just cold and they can just, yeah, can just wake up on Smith. I don't care. I just walk out there and at some point in the first half, I'll feel warm enough to cook and that's all I need. Yeah. Um, but that's not me. Um, and I, I kind of needed these, you know, elaborate rituals to get myself to the place I need to go. Working with some of the guys, the high level guys you work with, have you heard or seen anything? I know obviously meditation and breathing techniques are kind of more and more popular amongst sports now, but is there anything you've come across that's a little more niche or specific to, to an individual? Um, not niche specific to an individual that I've heard of. That's like, you know, Jared will do meditation. Um, I actually, a lot of guys take naps. Um, you know, I think a lot of guys take like, they'll take like a full, uh, ultradian cycle. I think like a 90 minute nap or so, um, a few hours before a game, especially, you know, they fall, most of the like higher level guys are playing at night. And so around that two, three o'clock time, I think they hit the nap. Um, I think that's a pretty typical one. Um, I heard Spencer Dinwiddie was taking like 20 minute naps, like in the locker room, getting close to oh, game wow. time within an hour of the game time. Um, I heard about that at one point. That was a pretty cool one. I thought that was very similar to the Yoga Nidra. And, uh, yeah. and I think the organization he was playing for at the time didn't like that. He was like, they felt like he wasn't ready because he was falling asleep. Wow. Um, but based on, you know, playing 7 PM games and the type of focus and relaxation that you need to be effective as a basketball player, I was, I was kind of pro short nap at that point. I was like, this yeah. is probably a good idea actually. Um, but yeah, besides that, you know, I've heard Russell Westbrook. I don't know anything about his specifics, but I heard he has a very elaborate pregame routine. I think a lot of guys that get to that level are pretty particular about the way they approach their pregame stuff from what they're eating to when they're taking their nap to how they, you know, probably the music they listen to all the way down the line. Um, it's just a lot of pressure out there. So, you know, you find something that's working for you and like, man, I, I can see them just like, grabbing onto that pretty tight yeah uh speaking of andrew huberman i feel like that's the the perfect way to describe you as the huberman of basketball oh geez I've definitely, yeah i've definitely told friends that that's the perfect way to describe kind of some of your practices and and techniques i feel like it's not the most uh mainstream you don't see a lot of trainers using some of the more of the spiritual off the court type of things and the mental exercises. Um, what is your learning process with some of that stuff? And how do you go about incorporating that with your athletes? Um, a lot of times, you know, I'll just like listen to the podcast. And like, if, if there's something I'm interested in, uh, like the whole time perception thing, 
you know, I've been talking, you know, for example, I have a buddy, Ross McMains, who coaches for the Celtics, who's like the, the smartest basketball person that I'm aware of in captivity. <laughs> and so if I have an idea, whether or not it's in Ross's wheelhouse of, you know, expertise across basketball, which sometimes it is, if it's like a technical basketball thing or a cultural basketball thing, sometimes it'll be outside. I'll always run it by Ross because he's pretty good at like, at least asking critical questions. So I was like thinking about, uh, you know, uh, why are some of the best players, the best players, uh, you know, like for example, like I think Luka Doncic is a guy who people look at and they're like, you know, he's, he's kind of out of shape. It feels like he's not that, he's not that fast. He's not yeah. a lot of guys in American basketball that feel like they could be as good as Luka Doncic if they just had <laughs> whatever he has, that's so much better than everybody else. At the same time, like, so I was like, okay, he, it must be something with the way that he's perceiving the world. Like time must be going slower for him. I don't know how that's happening, but for guys like him or even like a Michael Jordan who just seem to like make the right decision every time in critical moments, like something is happening for them that's not happening for the average person. What could that be? It has to be something to do with the way they're perceiving time. So then I go to Huberman's website and I would type in like, perception of time or something and see if anything pops up. He had a whole episode on perception of time. Um, But sometimes you have to go to Google. Sometimes you have to go to, and that can kind of just get you started in the right direction. And maybe then there's like an audio book or another podcast or like a peer review paper, or, you know, sometimes PJF will have a a podcast or some posts on a topic. but yeah, I'll just kind of search around and kind of hunt around until I find something I can experiment on myself with. And then I'll just try it myself and see what sort of results I get. Um, not to say that I'm like, you know, I'm an, I'm an N of one, so I'm not going to be like, you know, the, the perfect, I'm not the perfect guinea pig for everything. Um, but at least I can speak from personal experience when I'm recommending it. And I can be like, hey, I tried this, it seems to be working well, or I tried this and other people have had success, but it kind of didn't work for me. See what you think about it. Um, and then, yeah, I'll just recommend it to guys in that way. I'll, you know, I'll be like, Hey, like, yeah, I've, I've been trying this combination of supplements. Um, this is the result I'm getting. Uh, you know, other guys have tried it and they're getting a similar result. You might, you know, if you want to try it, I can send you some links to to the supplements. Here's some caveats and some places where this might not work as well. Or you might be like, ah, like, like I was saying with the, the dopamine supplements, like, you know, the feeling of dopamine, high dopamine is actually a feeling of frustration. So like, mm-hmm. you know, it, you, you can easily go overboard with that and be like, just, just really frustrated almost to the point of uh, discouragement. And so that's obviously not a good thing. So you kind of have to caveat that and be like, hey, the, you know, this might be very frustrating. You might be like kind of too concentrated. And so then there's these other techniques that we can try to even that out if it's not working for you. Um, but yeah, that's kind of the way I go about it and the way that I try to learn these things. Um, and then I guess like sometimes you'll have a, I don't know, you just try stuff. I just try stuff in workouts a lot or, you know, in, in, like training sessions, I'll have an idea that I'll see on in a game or something um, and how I can like help structure like some of those little games we'll play in the workouts like that you've guarded and stuff, you know, where we kind of break down mm-hmm. 
an action or break down a, a situation into like a small game. Um, and then you'll just try and manipulate the rules and design the rules so that you get the result you're looking for, the skill, kind of the general skill ideas you're looking for. Um, and then you just experiment with it. And sometimes you get it and sometimes it'll just be crap and you'll just throw it out and be like, uh, we're not doing that one again. Hopefully you have players that aren't like super critical and they'll just kind of forget the ones that were, that were trash <laughs> and appreciate the ones that go well for them. Yeah. When you started training and were transitioning out of being a player, was it something more at the time that you just felt like, oh, this is something to stay around basketball until I kind of figure out my next move? Or was it something right away that you felt like this is what I want to do and this is what I should be doing? Uh, Yeah, I think it was just to stay around basketball. Honestly, I don't even like, you know, to be fair, I, I don't know if I would like any job. So this isn't to say like, <laughs> I don't like the training. Like, I don't like the training. I don't like race chasing the rebounds. Like being in the gym is great sometimes, but like also if you're in the gym for like seven, eight, nine hours, you're like, uh, get me out of here. Like, I don't want to train people anymore like that. We consistently do, you know, it's decently boring. Like to be good at anything, you kind of got to do the same things over and over and over and over and over again. So you're, you know, constantly doing the same things over and over and over and over again. And then you know, I don't know how many times you have to teach the same thing over again, where you're like, God, do it this way. And you're like, I just can't listen to myself talk anymore. Um, but more or less, it was to stay around basketball. And I, I, I like to play a lot. And I like to experiment with like, trying to be better at basketball in different ways. Um, and if I'm training people, and if I'm training good players, I can also put together games of good players and like pick up games with good players. And one-on-one -on -one sessions with good players where I can try these different things and like see if they work. And then I can use them in competitive situations. And to me, I don't know, that's like one of the great joys in life is like figuring out new stuff and like, you know, doing things better than you've done them before. So it kind of gives me a, a, a platform to, to do that sort of stuff. Okay. Um, in terms of training, besides being in the gym for seven, eight hours a day and getting bored, what are some other challenges you find individually? Yeah. Uh, I think one of the big challenge, a uh, couple things, one, um, is, uh, watching someone suck or watching someone fail. Um, because so much of being good at, at a basketball or being good at really anything is about, the person that's participating, exploring the spectrum of what they can do. And for them to explore that spectrum, I can't be up in their grill, like talking the whole time. I have to be like letting them do the thing. So, you know, just like spending 10 minutes watching someone hit the front of the rim over and over and over and over and over again, or like fail at a specific skill over and over again. But knowing that, you know, if, if I make too many corrections, like I, the, what they're doing is already hard enough by me making more corrections. I'm not helping them. I'm, I'm just slowing this process of exploration down. Um, so that part was very hard to learn. And that part continues to always be hard where I just have to kind of, sometimes I'm a bad person for this. I'll just like kind of look away and just be like, ah, it's just going so poorly <laughs> over there right now. But there's not much I can do about it. So we're just going to keep throwing this ball back and saying, stick with it. And hopefully they'll figure this out in the next few reps. And if not, maybe I can give them a 
like a little nugget that might stick, but maybe that nugget doesn't stick and, and we'll see how it goes. Uh, so that part's hard. Um, another part that was hard for a long time was feeling like I had a good enough grasp of how to teach enough different things that were relevant to being good that I wasn't just like a glorified rebounder. Um, you know, if, 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 if the core of what I'm teaching is like, here's some moves and here's a shot, here's moves, here's a shot. Um, yeah, that wasn't good enough for me. That wasn't like something that I thought was going to be effective long-term for lots of different players across the you know spectrum of different abilities that I would encounter. Like one individual person might do well with that because they get the ball out when they play, but then somebody else might not because, you know, they run corner to corner a lot and they need to be good at something else. And so figuring out a wide enough array of, of teaching modalities and a wide enough, like, you know, having enough different, I guess, like drills and setups and, you know, solutions to basketball problems to be able to die you know, one diagnose and then two you know, implement the solutions to the different levels of players in a way that was effective and was getting results. I didn't have a lot of confidence in that for a long, long time. Um, so yeah, like there was a time where, you know, I, I guess like you would get like referrals and stuff. And I'm like, dude, why are people even referring? Like, all I do is rebound this ball and just tell people to do a move and then shoot it. Like, this can't be helping them that much. This can't be that complicated. <laughs> Um, but now I feel like I have a much better grasp of like, these things are going to work. This is going to work for you. Like, this is the way we're going to approach it. This is the way that, you know, you specifically can get better and be more impactful when you play. And here's a bunch of situations and scenarios and like little tricks within those situations and scenarios that, it's, that are going to help you get better. Um, and I think the last thing, another thing at least, and there's there's probably endless things, would be uh, finding a tone and a voice um, for the different levels of players. So, mm. you know, if you're only working with pro players, uh, you know, I think you can get very good at the tone and the the approach for working with pro players. Um, but that tone and that approach isn't always going to work with, you know, guys that are younger than that. And then people that are even younger than that. And then people that are even younger than that. Some of that will, some of that will translate all the way down, but definitely not all of it. And there's definitely a different way of approaching, you know, I, I do my son's preschool three and five year, three to five year old class. Right. And the way that I approach them is different than the way that I approach like a really good eight year old. Um, and the way that I approach him is different than I approach a 12 to 14 year old. Um, and there's obviously like, I'm talking about averages and not each individual person that you can kind of yeah. like tailor the way that you're talking to them, um, and all the way up. And so, and then, you know, all of that is different than somebody you've known for five or six years and versus somebody that you're just meeting for the first time. Um, so figuring out kind of how my voice, uh, was going to resonate with different levels of players at different part different times in the relationship uh that part is still tough that part is always tough and is always something i'm like trying to figure out how to how to best get the messages across feeling like you were just 
kind of a rebounder and then getting to where you are now, how did you get to the other side of that? Was that just constant learning? And um, Yeah, I think part of it was, uh, I mean, I give Ross McMaines a lot of credit. I'll give Ross McMaines credit to the end because Ross, Ross is one of the better linear bat. He might be one of the better linear thinkers in general. He just applies it almost exclusively to basketball, but he's one of the better linear thinkers I've ever met. And so, you know, Ross has seen me run workouts and I've talked to Ross about workouts I've run and like different ways of approaching player development. And Ross is really good at asking the critical questions about like, you know, what is, what are you getting out of that drill? Like, what is, mm-hmm. is that something that like, is that, something that's worth it for that player is this, you know, does this align with this player's best interest long-term? And so having Ross to bounce ideas off of and having him to talk about, you know, different ideas and different things that I was doing. um, Yeah. I think that helped a lot. I think continuing to play a lot and use techniques that I was learning from the little mini games that we were creating uh, myself I think that helped a lot. Um, And then, you know, I think like learning in general, just like general, I I got pretty big into like some parts of philosophy. I guess a little bit of psychology kind of gets ported in with philosophy. Um, Even like anthropology is, is pretty interesting. And I think you can take some of those ideas in the way that kind of people set up their structures and thought and translate that into how you're approaching teaching people how to be good at basketball and how you're presenting the solutions to problems and how you're organizing um, and structuring like someone's long-term development arc. Um, All right. Now we'll hit some some quick hitter questions. Um, When I ask for a memory from your career, what's the first one that comes to mind? Playing my or training, training career, my playing career, anything? Either one, yeah. Um, probably like my biggest breakout game in college comes to mind where I just like like I finally got I finally worked my way into the starting lineup and like I could tell the coach had faith in me and was trusting me to be to be good for us. And I just went 0 for five in the first half and I was like, when is this gonna happen? When is this gonna click? And then he went back to me in the second half. Um, and I just had like a great second half. I think I had like, I don't know, I probably had like 19 in the second half. Um, and I like to that point in my career, I hadn't had moments of resilience like that. Um, I also really hadn't had someone believe in me the way that he believed in me during that period of time where he was like, we're, we're just going to go to you because I think you can do it. Um, so that that was very cool, and that gave me a lot of, I think, long-term confidence in my ability to figure things out. In your basketball career, training or playing, what do you think the biggest decision you've made is and why? The biggest decision? Yeah. Uh, I mean, the biggest decision I made was to, I guess, to go to Cal State East Bay. Um, and I did that just like kind of chasing a girl. Wow. Um, yeah. If I hadn't gone to Cal State East Bay, um, you know, I had, I was like a D3 walk-on. So like I had other 
schools up in the Northwest, more near to where I was playing junior college that wanted me to come play for them. Like they were actively recruiting me. Um, but the girl I was talking to at the time was going to go to Stanford. I wasn't going to Stanford. So I was like, (laughs) I got to get somewhere near there. And, uh, Cal state East Bay had the worst possible program near Stanford. So I was like, hit up the coach and I was like, yeah, like, let me walk on up there. Um, I'm trying to play and it ended up working out. And that's kind of, if I don't go there, I don't meet Charlie. If I don't meet Charlie, I don't end up in Southern California. If I don't end up in Southern California, I, I kind of don't do the basketball thing in the way that I'm doing it now. Wow. Yeah. It's a big domino effect. Yeah. It's the way it'll be. Uh, what is your favorite failure or the failure that mo- made you where, or that put you where you are now? so many i mean i guess the failure to play, play pro basketball um mm. i just have so many times where i just couldn't get get myself right as a player like you know even until geez i remember talking with my boy frank who i played college with like during the the, during kind of the lockdowns when there wasn't any gyms open and we were playing quite a bit at open gym premiere, just shooting the ball terrible. And I was like, dude, I don't know what it is. I don't know why I can't figure out, like I'm, I'm coming up on 35 now and I can't figure out how to be a more consistent performer at something I've done for effectively my whole life now. Like this is extremely frustrating. Um, so yeah, I just had a lot of moments like that. Um, and, and like, again, like I, you know, I'll still have times where I go out there and just, uh, I had one in early December where I was just like, what is going on? Why can I not make a shot? What is wrong with me? How many times do I have to do this in my life before I can just be consistent? Um, but I do feel much, yeah, I feel like I've made progress, uh, like over the many, many years, made progress in many different domains towards being a more consistent performer. Is there a difficult decision you've ever had to make uh, kind of to stay on track with training or to stay on this basketball path? Is there is there a turning point, kind of make or break, maybe something, I don't know, during COVID, I know you had some struggles with training and you're moving a lot, anything that comes to mind with? Yeah. Um, at, at that point, I mean, I was pretty like my family at that point was pretty committed to me doing basketball training. Um, I think a big one was, uh, there was just a lot of transition going on around like 2016 or so in, you know, me and Charlie had done business together for like five years from 2011 to 2016. And, you know, myriad circumstances kind of had us moving in separate directions in terms of our basketball stuff. And so much of the stuff we had done to that point had us tied together. And so much of my like local reputation and Mm. my business was tied to Charlie that when we started doing stuff more separate, um, that was really hard. And that was, you know, I ended up, I lost a good amount of my business at that point. Um, and it wasn't anything to do with like Charlie being malicious, like we're still cool to this day, but we just decided to do things kind of more on our own. Um, and that was tough. Um, and I don't think I realized how much support I was getting from 
you know, Charlie and Charlie's kind of basketball network of people um, that I was still slightly integrated with, but definitely not as much as I had been to that point and how hard it was to, you know, kind of build your basketball training business as your only thing that you're doing. I quit coaching the basketball team at La Mirada. Um, and so I didn't have that going. And so I was just like doing full-time basketball training. Um, and that was, I don't know, it was kind of lonely and kind of like hard to figure out at first. Um, so yeah, that was a time that was pretty rough, but, uh, yeah, I mean, that's the way that these things go. I think you just kind of got to keep working at it. Was there ever a point where you thought like, maybe this whole training thing isn't for me, maybe I got to try something else or was it, um, I'm making this work till the wheels fall off. Yeah. I mean, I was a single guy, um, like low, low, uh, burn rate. So even when things went poorly, I kind of always knew I'd be able to figure it out. Like, at least I had a sense that I was like, okay, if I just stay at this, like, this will build back up. This will somehow work itself out. I just have to, you know, continue to like, kind of hack away at it and develop relationships and, you know, do the best I can by the players I'm working with. And this should be able to work itself out. I feel like I'm pretty intelligent and I'm decently like hardworking. So all of that should come together at some point. And maybe I was just like, you know, that, that sounds like a lot of whistling in the dark and hoping. Um, for the future, um, for Shay, what does that look like? Are there any, you know, resources you're trying to come out with? I know you have some shooting courses. Are there any goals or benchmarks you're trying to hit as a trainer or social media brand wise? Any, what is the future looking like uh, for you? There's not really any specific goals or benchmarks. Um, I'm trying to redo the shooting stuff. Um, there's a really good book by Rob Gray called How to Learn to Move um, that I listened to, uh, you know, within the past year. It has some good stuff in it. Um, like, I mean, one of the main takeaways is about like the, the importance of variability and learning. Um, I know a lot of people have to get shots up on their own in some capacity. And so I'm trying to figure out how to take kind of the, the net or like the gross knowledge of basketball I have and put it together with a program for shot making. I call shot making because like the little scoops and the floaters and all that goes in the category of shooting when you start thinking about variability. I'd like to put out something that's more comprehensive than the offering I currently have in the next, I don't know, year, but I don't have any specific timelines like that. Um, goals wise, uh, Mark, I'm going to butcher his name, Mark Daniel, the Thunder coach. I had a conversation yeah. with him during COVID. He's great. Like it seems wow. like, and when I watch him, you know, his team play, they play a phenomenal version of modern basketball um, and are exceeding expectations really on all levels. I remember him talking about, I asked him what his goals were. And at the time, I think he was an assistant under Billy Donovan. He's like, yeah, I don't really have goals. I'm just going to keep something along the lines of, and I'm going to try and get this directionally correct. And it's not a direct quote, but it was something along the lines of like, like do right by the people that I'm working with, do a good job, the best possible job I can. And the, you know, in the jobs and the capacities that I'm currently in and like, we'll see what opportunities come up along the way. 
And so I kind of took that from him and I was like, you know, that's a great answer. Um, wow. And that seems yeah, like really is. a really like grounded, like solid way to go about it where you're not putting expectations out there in the world that you don't have too much control over and can be, you know, thwarted at any moment. So I'm going to, I'm going to go with the Mark Daniel answer and uh, we'll see what opportunities come up and we'll, we'll figure it out as we go. Nice. Uh, so I want to end every episode with a piece of advice that you'd give to your younger self. So knowing what you know now, experiencing everything, everything that you've learned, what's yeah. the number one thing you'd go back and tell your younger self? Um, yeah, I would probably just tell myself to like be consistent and be consistent, find routines and stay with them. Um, like I said earlier, don't over tinker, don't mess with it too much. Like be, you know, be self-aware and stick with the things that are working. And yeah, my tendency, I think everyone's advice is going to be slightly different because everyone's going to have, you know, different tendencies to do different things. My tendency was to over tinker, overthink, over analyze and end up messing things up when I did mess them up because of trying to do too much. Just keep it simple. You figure out a routine. It works. Just stay with that until the wheels fall off and see how far it can take you. That simple. Awesome. This was great. Thank you for coming on. Uh, any yeah, social media handles? Yeah, uh, yeah. Any I'm social just, media handles or website you want to plug? Shay Frazy on Instagram. My website's uh, shayfrazy.com. Um, yeah, um, that's about it, man. Check, check me out. Um, I'll be posting stuff here and there. Mostly, I think most of the stuff I post right now is about the mental side of the game because that's what's most interesting to me. Um, but yeah, uh, if you're out there listening, hit me up anytime with any basketball questions. I love talking about this stuff and figuring this stuff out.